Right, you can be seated. Okay, today in our sermon series on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we have come to the series of questions that have to do with the second commandment. And there are four questions pertaining to the second commandment in our catechism. So this week I want to begin with a general introduction to the second commandment. I'm doing something a little extra. Uh, As you may remember with the first commandment, I combined the commandment itself, the introduction, and the things that are required in it. Then we did the things that are forbidden, and then we did the reasons that are are annexed to that commandment, or the before me part that is annexed to that commandment. But with this one, I want to have a separate introductory sermon just on the commandment itself, because there's some things I want to look at about this commandment's relationship to other commandments. So that means that next week we'll plan to move on and look at what is required after the introduction this week. Then we'll look at what is forbidden in the second commandment. And then we'll look at the reasons that God has given us for keeping this commandment. So let's now confess together question 49. Which is the second commandment? The second commandment is, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands that love me and keep my commandments. Before we have our scripture reading, I want to spend a little bit of time uh, go ahead and do our first point of the sermon and then have our scripture reading today. We, of course, just quoted the second commandment, but I want to begin today by showing you what the difference is between the first and second commandment. Because in the history of the church, this has sometimes been quite muddled. And a lot of people today would have a hard time being able to say what the difference is. Do you know the difference? In short, the difference is this. The first commandment tells us not to worship other gods. And the second commandment tells us not to worship the true God idolatrously or in an idolatrous way. Another way to say it is that the first commandment tells us what to worship, the only true God. And the second commandment tells us how to worship, not by making images or any likeness of him, but according to what he has commanded. The Roman Catholic Church does not acknowledge any difference, really, between the first and second commandment. In fact, they don't recognize them as two different commandments. Though they claim to follow ancient tradition on things, they have renumbered the Ten Commandments in a way that was unknown prior to their doing so, a way that makes the first and second commandment into the first commandment. And then the third commandment is called by them the second, and the fourth commandment is called by them the third, and on down the line. To get the number to come out right, of course, there's a problem when you get to the end of the, of the Ten Commandments, and we know that there are ten, 
And so what they do then is they make the tenth commandment into two separate commandments. So then for them, the ninth commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And the tenth commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So this is a very forced interpretation because when it says, nor anything that is your neighbor's, it obviously does not put the house in a separate category from the donkey. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange interpretation. And to make matters even worse, Deuteronomy 5, where the commandments are repeat, restated, Moses reverses the order and says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, says that first, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, and so on. And they do this renumbering despite the fact that the Jews and the early church as well as the Eastern churches number the commandments the same way we do. But what does it matter if you want to number the commandments in a different way, really, when you get down to it? Well, it makes a big difference, and I'll tell you why. There's a reason that they do it. By renumbering them like this, they essentially do away with the second commandment, because it's a commandment that they do not wish to keep. You see, for them, the words about making a graven image do not forbid us to make any image or likeness of the true God in our worship of the true God. It is only a prohibition against making idols of other, making other gods, worshiping other gods, like an image of Baal or something like that. When it says don't make a graven image, it means that, not an image of the true God. By doing away with the second commandment like this, it opens the way for Christians to make images of Jesus to be used in the worship of the true God as long as you're not worshiping another God because that's all that is forbidden in their view. And uh, nothing is wrong with making various kinds of images by which God is worshipped. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that there is no such thing as a kind of idolatry that breaks the first commandment. I'm saying that the kind of idolatry prohibited in the second commandment is a different kind of idolatry than what we could call first commandment idolatry. What is the difference in the idolatry that breaks the first commandment and the kind that breaks the second commandment? Well, first commandment idolatry involves making of idols for the purpose of worshiping other gods. A lot of false worship involves making images to represent these gods is a sort of a place where you connect with them. You set up a shrine and you have the image of the God and you go there to kind of connect. For example, in the Old Testament, you have examples of people making images of Baal or images of Molech. In our day, you have the Hindus that have different images of gods that they bow before. This kind of idolatry is a violation of the first commandment because you're worshiping other gods besides the true God. But second commandment idolatry involves making an image of the true God and worshiping before that image of the true God. This is done to create a way of reproaching, or of approaching, not reproaching, of approaching the true God. 
It's done with the best of intentions to enhance the worshiper's devotion and our sense of our connection with God as an aid to instruct us about God, as a way to feel close to him, all of these sorts of things. For example, the Roman church has the stations of the cross that take you through the redemptive work of Christ so that you can walk through the story visually. Today, this is done through other kinds of media as well. For example, you have movies like The the Passion or Jesus of Nazareth or some movie like that. Um, Many people testify as to how these movies, you know, they really help my devotion, people will say. They help my devotion to Christ. There are also many people who have pictures of Jesus that they use to enhance their devotions. And there are those who have a cross that they rub to to feel secure and close to God or something like that. I saw uh, some evangelist, TV evangelist type guy advertising a cross that you could buy that, you know, they had blessed especially and that people found how close they were to God when they rubbed the, the cross. Really, the idolatry forbidden in the second commandment comes down to the various things that people do to try to connect with God in their worship of him that God has not appointed. The point is that he is the only one who decides how we ought to connect with him, how he ought to be presented to us. You say, well, I'm a different kind of learner. I don't like to learn the way that God presented him. Well, you have to learn to love the way that he does it, the way that we are to approach him. This is really at the heart of what the second commandment is all about. The point is that he is the only one who ought to decide how he ought to be presented to us and how we ought to approach him. Can you see what a serious error it is when we become the ones who decide how God is to be approached? I mean, we're not the ones who are capable or sufficient in any way of deciding this. It doesn't belong to us. We don't have that authority. I mean, what are we thinking? That worship is about us? Is worship like a program that we go to so we can be entertained? And is the audience, are are we the audience of worship? Of course not. We're, we're coming before the Most High God. It is not for us to tell Him what He requires of us in worship, what He ought to require of us, or what we ought to do, how He ought to meet with us. We're not capable of coming up with what pleases Him. We're mere creatures, and He is the Most High God. He dwells in the realms of glory, and we are mere earthly creatures. It's a great privilege for us to be invited to come before Him, and it is our duty to find out what he requires of us when we come. We cannot possibly know that as mere creatures. But that is not even the main reason that we're unsuited to the task of deciding how God should be approached. We're not only mere creatures, but we are also fallen creatures. We're corrupted by sin. Sin blinds us. It has corrupted our hearts and our desires and our very thinking. If God invites us to come to worship him, we must come humbly asking him how he wants us to come and what he requires of us. If you come before the queen and you learn some protocol, how am I supposed to speak to her? How am I, should I do this first or should I, you, you learn different things that you're to do. 
How much more when it is the living God? The second commandment is really, when we talk about the gravity of the second commandment, it's really about the very gospel itself. Because what's the gospel about? The way to God. How do sinners come to God? That's the gospel. When you boil it all down, you either come to God as he requires, or you come to him as you have determined. And he has told us plainly in his word that the only acceptable way to come to him is through Jesus who is crucified. That's the essence of the whole thing. He is a holy God who does not accept us unless we have an atonement for our sins. If you come with baptism without baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all that the Son did on the cross and all this, then you're not coming to God in the right way. The only atonement that is acceptable in his sight is the shed blood of his only son, Jesus. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We completely change the paradigm when we begin to take it upon ourselves to decide how God will be approached by us. If we continue in that paradigm, we will reject Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer. We always will. It always happens in the church. We will say, surely the Lord does not exclude people who do not come through Jesus. I mean, after all, if a person is sincere, surely that's good enough and God should be happy to be approached by someone that maybe has a different religion and they come in a different way that they learned when they were growing up and they're sincere about it. Or we will say, surely God is not the kind of God that would be so angry with sin that he would require his son to be punished for it. We can surely come to God in other ways than that. We will reject the very gospel itself if we take it upon ourselves to decide how God is to be worshipped. This is not just theoretical. I mean, it's totally not theoretical. It's happened over and over and over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that people have step by step deviated from approaching God the way that he tells them to. They start worshiping in the Old Testament, the high places, and then they progress to bringing Baal in and having another expression of God. They would say, they'd still say it was God. Baal was God. They got a different expression. Then they start to move over, getting other gods, importing them, bringing their altar. It just goes on and on and on. In Deuteronomy 12, the passage I've chosen for our scripture reading, the Lord warns us about the dangers of approaching God the way the nations approach their gods. The popular way the nations approached their gods in those days was with idolatrous rituals. Everything from fertility rites to child sacrifice before various images that represented their gods was the way that they approached. And in our society, the popular notion is to say that God is totally open to whatever people want to bring before him as an expression of their heart to him so they can devise whatever methods, whatever things they want to bring, that he is all accepting and always appreciative of whatever efforts we make. The illustration might be made of a a little child making a picture for their father and their father saying, I don't want that to, to say that how wrong it would be to say such a thing about God. But you see, that's a false illustration because God is the holy God and we're sinners and and he reveals to us the right way for us to approach him. It would be more like a child doing something that was inappropriate, like maybe they steal something from the store to give to their daddy and he says, well now I 
I know you wanted to give this to me, but we need to take that back to the store. You're not supposed to take something that's not yours. So it's a, it's a, very, it's a very twisted way of thinking. Well, let's look at um, what the Word of God says about it. Um, the, the chapter that really brings this home to us is Deuteronomy chapter 12. And so I've selected that for our scripture reading. Give careful attention because this is the very Word of God. I told you we'd have the scripture reading later today in our service. So Deuteronomy 12. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings, of your hand and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. Now if I just pause there for a minute, you see how great a temptation it would be where those that had to travel a long way to worship at the one place that God put his name, which was at Jerusalem, They weren't supposed to do, the point is, they weren't supposed to do sacrifices anywhere else, only at Jerusalem. That's why so careful later on to talk about like not eating the blood of the sacrifice, like pour the blood out. It's not a sacrifice. I said sacrifice, the food that you're eating. It's not a sacrifice. Only only place to do the sacrifices at the temple. He's saying all that. There would be a temptation to say, well, but we could worship God more if we had an altar here in our local community. Now we could do it every week, like we could go and do sacrifices and whatnot. We could even do it every day. And then wouldn't we be closer to God that way? And you see, that would distort what God wanted to show his people. So verse 13 says, Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, 
Whatever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or your new wine or your oil of the firstborn of your herd or your flock of any of your offerings which you vow of your freewill offerings or of the heave offering of your hand. But you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your gates. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all to which you put your hands. Take heed to yourself that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in the land. When the Lord your God enlarges your border as he has promised you, and you say, let me eat meat, because you long to eat meat, you may eat as much meat as your heart desires. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter from your herd and from your flock, which the Lord has given you, just as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your gates as much as your heart desires. Just as the gazelle and the deer are eaten, so you may eat them. The unclean and the clean alike may eat them. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life of, with the meat. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that it may go well with you and your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Only the holy things which you have and your vowed offerings you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses. And you shall offer your burnt offerings, the meat and the blood on on the altar of the Lord your God. And the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall eat the meat. Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may be well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. Now, I just want to pause here again and make a comment. You notice how often, how he's emphasizing about that it will be well with you and your children after you. What is the second commandment? We're we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but what does it have is the reason for it? Because the iniquity of the fathers is visited to the children of the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. And so if we are violating this commandment, it's going to especially have an effect on our children. Because we're stepping away from the worship that God has appointed, maybe only one step, and we still have the truth. But then maybe they go another step. And then down the line, eventually we get far away. So verse 29 sums up here this last paragraph. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. See, not serve their gods, but serve the Lord God the way they serve their gods. Verse 31, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. You can see here in Deuteronomy 12 how God insists that we approach him only as he is commanded. 
The last verse is really the summary of the whole chapter, isn't it? Where the Lord says, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. This verse is sometimes quoted out of context to say that we should not add to or take away from God's commandments in a general way. And of course, that's true. We're not supposed to make up commandments, are we? But when you read it in the context with the rest of the chapter, it's clear that it's talking about what God has commanded us to do in worship, not just commandments in general. So you need to see it in the context. It's disposing of the idea that God has just left it up to us to decide how we will worship him. It is telling us that we are to limit ourselves to what he has commanded and that we're to do all that he has commanded. It's not left up to us to decide that preaching is outmoded and to bring drama in or dialogue or some other way of conveying God's truth. We say, well, it's just as long as the truth is conveyed, right? No, it's as long as we do it in the way that God told us to do it, as long as conveying the truth. Or we can decide that we can attract the lost if we add musical performances or something like that to enhance our worship. We're going to have music instead of instead of preaching or complete with sensual worship leaders or or cool guys on the bass guitar or whatever or a full symphony orchestra that for other kinds of people we're oh we're in a community where they like that so we're gonna we're gonna have a big symphony in our church that plays beautiful music or we're gonna get a three million dollar organ and use that to worship God and then everybody will feel close to God the principle of Deuteronomy 12 is that the Lord is saying just do what I told you to do Stick with what I told you to do. You can do your artistic performances to the glory of God wherever you want. (laughs) Just like you said, you can eat your food. You can have a big feast. You can do that all you want. But don't turn it into like a worship thing where you're offering blood and sacrificing and there's an altar and all those kind of... No, you do that only at Jerusalem in the place I've appointed and the way I've appointed. You worship God. Just stick to what's commanded. This is what we sometimes refer to as the regulative principle of worship. This is what the prophets called for in the Old Testament, and they called for it again and again, and what only a very few of Judah's kings ever did, and none of Israel's kings ever did when the kingdom was divided. Uh, David, Hezekiah, and Josiah or the only ones that had regulated worship when they were kings, that insisted upon regulated worship. All the rest of them either added to what God had commanded or took away from it. Worship according to God's commandments is also what the apostles called for when they instituted worship of the new covenant. We'll look at these simple elements of worship that are appointed for us by the apostles, Lord willing, next week, the ones that Christ has appointed, what are we to do in our worship? What does God require of us? We'll look at that in a New Testament perspective. But suffice for now to say that Paul was already having to address the problem of those who were taking delight in what he referred to as the worship of angels. They said, well, the angels are ministering servants of God, and so we'll connect with the angels. We'll, we'll find comfort in praying to the angels and looking to them. They, were, they, they did that. And he called this self-imposed, what, what he called also self-imposed religion and false humility. 
Colossians 2.23. By the 15th century, things had deteriorated so much that the gospel was not preached. The scriptures were not read, and the church was filled with images of saints and with relics and all sorts of superstitious rituals to get close to God. And instead of preaching salvation by faith in Christ, they preached salvation by paying money to purchase an indulgence from the church so that you could be forgiven in that way or lighting a candle for someone that died and having prayers for them after they had died instead of the gospel itself. The reformers were ministers of the gospel who sought to return the church to the worship that God had commanded. Calvin actually said that that reform of worship was even more important than the reform of doctrine. And the reason is because if you're worshiping God in the wrong way, if you're approaching him in the wrong way, then you don't know the true God anymore. Whatever you may say you believe about him, you've, you've distorted things. Again, the Lord says it in Deuteronomy 12, 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. That is the divine law of worship. That is the regulative principle of worship. Let's look at how this principle is fleshed out for us in the rest of the chapter. Okay, first see that the Lord absolutely forbids us to learn worship from pagans. Deuteronomy 12 opens with a call to completely destroy all the shrines the shrines and the implements of worship that the Canaanites used. You know that God, having brought his people out of Egypt, was bringing them into the land of Canaan. They were going to root out the people of Canaan at God's command. And in doing so, you remember that they would obtain houses and vineyards and olive groves that they had not ever planted, houses that they had not built. They were welcome to use all of those things. For themselves, they could use, they could live in the houses, take up the olive grove, whatever. But under no circumstances, whatever, were they to make use of the places of worship that the Canaanites had built. Their Canaanite houses of worship and all the accoutrements of worship were rather to be completely destroyed. God does not want to be worshipped in the way that they worship their gods or worshiped with the things that they used. Look again at the first four verses, and you see that. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars and break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. Everything had to do, that had to do with worship, those things were to be destroyed. The Israelites were not to use their shrines, which were often elaborate, very costly, nor were they to use their implements of worship. And the reason is clearly stated in verse 4. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. As fine and beautiful as all of their places and implements of worship might be, God made it clear he did not want to be worshipped with these things. He did not want anything to do with this worship. And then at the end of Deuteronomy 12, we have the clear prohibition against worshipping the Lord the way the pagans worship their gods. He tells them that the Canaanites are not to be their instructors 
of worship. God is to instruct them about worship, not the world. And there are churches that will look out at the world and say, what does the world want us to do in worship? We want to make it an attractive church an attractive place for them. And then they design their worship according to that. I actually had a class where that was being taught. You know, you, like you live in a place where they love country western music. And so then you kind of have a country western church service and you, you set everything up that way because the people here, they like that and they'll come to church. And, you know, all, all that kind of, they, they had all kinds of different things. You know, smart people uh, area where they had a bunch of uh, very educated people. And the, the idea there was that you should, um, you should give everybody responsibilities because smart people like to run things. So you get everybody in charge of different things in the church that they can run and manage. And then they'll feel like they're really important. You can get unbelievers in and bring them in that way where they give, get a responsibility in the church of some kind. That sort of thing. But no, this is, we're not to worship God in, there, in that way. Look at what uh, 1229 says. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you're not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Now, it seems that this should all go without saying, but sadly, it is not so. The sad history of God's people, as I've said, continually displays this. In Exodus 32, we have the disturbing account of the setting up of the golden calf for worship of God under the leadership of Aaron. Where do the people ever get such an idea? Why would you make a calf to worship the Lord God? Well, this is how the Egyptians worshiped their gods. They'd lived in Egypt all those years, and this is what the Egyptians did. They would make images of their gods, and they would set the image of their god on the back of a calf. So that it was there, uh, you know, like there'd be a young bull or a calf or something like that. And it was like a throne for, for their gods. Turn to Exodus 32 for a moment and you can see that they're not rejecting Jehovah here to worship another god when they make this calf. That's what people think a lot of times. Oh, they're worshiping the gods of Egypt. No, they're not worshiping the gods of Egypt. They're worshiping Jehovah in the way the Egyptians worship their gods. That's the issue. It's the second commandment, not the first. Look, at, it, it was a, this calf worship thing. This was a place to meet with God, a trysting place to connect with God. So look at verse 1. It says, Exodus 32, 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods. Important. That word, Elohim. That's the word that, that I'll explain that in a minute. Come and make us gods, Elohim, that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The idea here is that they're making an image of God to go before them something by which they may visualize God, something to help them know that he is present with them. But notice again that they say gods here. Does this indicate that they were wanting to worship multiple gods? I do not think it does. 
you need to understand something about this word Elohim, which is usually translated God. The word Elohim is always plural. So we don't know whether it should be translated God or gods. Only the context tells us that. For example, the first verse in the Bible has the words, In the beginning, God, Elohim in the plural, created the heaven and the earth. We don't translate that one. In the beginning, gods or various gods created the heavens and the earth. We translate Elohim as God. So the plural does not indicate that they are thinking of a different God than the true God who brought them out of Egypt. And the reason I need to dispose of that is because the context makes it very clear that they were not. That this is not the worship of another God becomes much more clear as the passage continues. As long as you don't get confused about the Elohim part. Look at verse 2 through 4. Exodus 32, 2. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand. And he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So they identified the God that they were worshiping. It was the one that brought them out of Egypt. Who was that? Well, we know it was the Lord God. You see here that the people recognize this as an image of the God that they had been serving. They were not attempting to worship a different God. They were attempting to worship the God who made himself known to them by delivering them out of Egypt. Aaron makes it even more certain that they were intending to worship the true God in verses 5 and 6. Exodus 32, 5. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Now you notice that Aaron speaks of worship around this image as what? A feast to the Lord. Remember, When the word Lord is written as it is here with all capital letters in our English Bible, it means Yahweh, Jehovah. That was God's unique covenant name. It was never used of any other gods. Even the other peoples would talk about, oh, there's Jehovah and over there is Baal and over there is Asherah. They would talk about the different gods. That was the name, the unique name that distinguished him from the other gods. God's unique name that means I am that I am. It means that he is self-existing. Israel was not worshiping another God when they made this calf. They were worshiping the only true self-existing God, Jehovah, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. The problem was that they were worshiping him the way the Egyptians worshiped their gods. And this is certainly not the only time Israel did this. Despite the clear instructions of the Lord here in Deuteronomy 12 in the passage that we read, and despite his obvious displeasure with the golden calf, we find them worshiping at high places, the very places that he told them to destroy specifically in Deuteronomy 12. As I mentioned already, out of all the kings of Israel and Judah, there are only three that did not tolerate worship at the high places. 
And God points this fact out, saying of some of the kings of Judah that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, except for one thing. They did not remove worship at the high places. It was, in fact, their normal practice to worship God at the high places and to be influenced by pagan rituals. And this was a snare to them again and again. And it, has, it is still the case in the New Testament church all along the way. The whole notion of bowing down to images of the saints that became so prevalent in the Middle Ages came straight out of pagan worship. It's ancestor worship turned into this some great father of the faith that we bow down to when we go to church, put his picture on the wall or make an image of him. It was the way that people had worshipped their gods. So leaders in the church, just like Aaron, decided to go along with it over the years and almost completely eroded the ordinances of God with these things. They weren't worshipping a different god. They, weren't, they, weren't, they, they, they would tell you not worshipping the saints, but connecting with God with the saints, asking the saints to pray for them, that sort of thing. The reformers were diligent to root out this idolatry. But today we see that many of the, their errors are gravitating to it all over again, as if this is the progressive way forward. And if not that, we see movement toward approaching God as if, as if the modern pagan view of him is true, that he delights to be approached in whatever random way each individual may choose. You have everything from, from puppet shows to pagan tongues to organ recitals to um, thing I saw not long ago was the guy that had a, a little boat with, uh, staged with in, in a in floating in water with thunder and lightning around in the stage in the um, in, in the auditorium. Uh, all all kinds of crazy things that people do, and all with the intention of connecting with God. When will we ever learn that God does not want us to worship Him in the way that the pagans worship their gods, nor in any other way? that we might come up with. But note well that Deuteronomy 12 also calls us, and this is important, to give ourselves wholly to the worship that he has commanded. That's one of the things that happens. If you add your own worship, you're going to neglect the worship that he's given. So we're to pour ourselves into diligently and consistently and wholeheartedly the worship that he has given us. As I mentioned before, when we look at the commandments, we must not only look at what is prohibited, but also at what is required. So in prohibiting additions to his worship, the Lord's primarily, primary concern is that we worship him according to what he has commanded. Whenever we begin to add pagan elements to our worship, it's always only a short while until we start to remove the elements that he has commanded. Many of you have been in churches that started to focus on pagan-style praise with a worship team and various embellishments, or in traditional churches with great choirs and organs and such, and you have seen how preaching and congregational singing became more and more diminished over the years. You know, people that said, you know, that we spend an hour with our praise choruses, and now the sermons are just 10 minutes. Preaching is, according to the New Testament, the primary element in New Testament worship. But there are many periods in church history where it has virtually disappeared. 
where it was not even done. If you look at Deuteronomy 12, 10 through 12, you see how the Lord tells them to give themselves wholeheartedly to what he has commanded. Deuteronomy 12, 10. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Okay, this is where he's revealing himself, making his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates." They should be enthusiastic about the Lord's worship, not their worship of the golden calf. They were to receive the worship that God appointed and to give themselves to it with their whole heart. Next week, Lord willing, I plan to speak on the worship that God has appointed for us under the new covenant. So we'll look at the worship that we ought to give ourselves to. But today, I simply want you to see that as God's people, it is not for us to decide what to do in worship. It is for us to find out what God wants and to follow what God says. I would encourage you to give yourself to this with your whole heart. We may not love some of the things that God has appointed for us in worship at first, but that doesn't give us warrant to change those things. To say, oh, I don't like that. It rather calls us to bemoan our condition and to learn to love what God has called us to do. It's striking to see how eager the people were to worship the golden calf. They gave up their gold. No one had to be dragged out to worship. They didn't have to have a big campaign to raise money. He just said, hey, go and get some gold, and they'd tear off the earrings, and they were all, all ready to go. If they'd interviewed people in the congregation at that time, you know, if a news reporter had come and said, hey, what's going on here? And, you know, this is exciting. What's going on? Then uh, the people in the congregation, you would have heard everyone telling about how great this new approach to worship was and how much they like coming to church now and how, how their children liked it and how it was just such a wonderful thing. Books could have been written about how to have a successful uh, worship uh, service and that will serve the whole community and that everybody will want to participate in. It could have all been promoted and, and they could have made a lot of money, actually, uh, writing books and things. Brothers and sisters, why is it that we love the worship that we devise but have such a hard time with worship that God has appointed? There's a reason it's that way. It's because we're a sinful people. God tells us to, that we are to delight in His worship. Don't expect it to always be easy. It never has been. It never has been. But come to the Lord in humble recognition that you need His grace. To talk about what we did this morning, that He's the one that washes us. Isn't that what it's really all about anyway? We come to the God whose grace we need. The worship that He has appointed is not so much about a performance that we put on, it's about coming before him to learn of him, to rejoice in his redemption, and to look to him for grace, to seek and receive his grace. We can do concerts, we can do performances for each other all through the week if we want to. 
But on the Lord's Day, we should come to the sacred assembly in the simplicity that He has called us to. It's about Him. It's not about our performance. It's about the true God. But I tell you, if you worship God as He's commanded, and if you ask Him to help you learn to love that worship and to meet Him in that worship, you will learn to love it. And you won't want to worship Him in the way that the world does. And when you see people worshiping in the way that the world does, it will turn your stomach rather than making being attractive to you. Please stand and let's call on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you that you have revealed the way into the holiest. That as we read this morning, it's by the blood of Jesus. The way we come to you is the way that you've appointed for us. And really, that's the, that's the bottom line with the second commandment, that we, we can't come to you any old way we want. We can't come and say, I'll offer my child as a sacrifice instead of Jesus. That would be a personal sacrifice, and that way it would mean more. Or we can't come and say, that, oh, I'll give this, uh, this big sum of money, and God, God will, will take that instead of having to rely upon his son. Lord, we know that even in the very elements of worship that you have appointed, that many times we, we, want to, we want to do something else. We want to add other things. We want to spice up. We want to change and distort what you have given us simply. And we pray, Lord, that you would guard us from such things. We pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in what you have appointed for us, and we would learn to engage in it with our whole heart, not in an empty way. We know, Lord, that even something as simple as this Bible reading can become very precious to us. It can become one of the most meaningful things that we do in the whole week. And we pray, O oh Lord, that, that more and more we would learn to, to love your ways and that you would strengthen us and encourage us And guard our hearts, Lord. Keep us from turning away from what you have appointed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, receive now the blessing of the Lord. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.